Good morning. It's good to see all of you here today. Thank you for coming, being a part of our worship here this morning at Ivy Creek. I also want to thank Wayne Noggle for being here this morning and uh, for just sharing a little bit about his ministry there at Families for Families. And, you know, as he mentioned, if, if foster care is something that you're interested in, if, if it's something that perhaps you're, you're just... The Lord just spoke to you this morning, and maybe it's something that he's been speaking to you about even before today, and you just want to know a little bit more about it. I want you to know, going to, a, going to an informational meeting is not, is not signing up to have children in your home next week. That's not what that is, but it is a way for you to get more information. It is a way for you to understand a little bit more about that ministry. And I would just like to echo what he said and just invite you to be a part of that uh, here in a couple of weeks on the 28th. Um, and just take advantage of that opportunity, and at least you will be uh, better uh, in the know of what those opportunities are and how they might impact you and, um, and how you can pray for others who that is the journey that they want to be on. And so I would just encourage you in that regard. I truly believe what the Bible says, that when it tells us that children are a heritage from the Lord, I believe that because that is the case, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ must take seriously our responsibility in ministering to children. Not only ministering to children, but ministering to their families. And I believe that as we do that, we have the ability, God gives us the ability to make an impact in the life of a child, but not just the life of that child, but in the life of a community. And to all of the folks that that child will have the opportunity to impact over the course of their lives. And so we must not take uh, those responsibilities for granted, and we must consider the fact that God has uniquely called his church to minister in areas that can sometimes be a, a challenge and even an, an interesting uh, decision-making process that we go through ourselves. And it really is that that introduces us to the passage that I want us to consider this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them? Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. I'm kidding. The Gospel of Matthew. <laughs> Matthew chapter 5. And some of you will remember a few years ago, we as a church family worked through the greatest sermon that was ever preached and was codified and written down for us, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. You'll recall that we worked our way through every single paragraph of that text. This morning, I want us to just revisit a few verses of that most famous and that greatest sermon ever preached. And specifically what I want us to do is consider the two metaphors that Jesus gives uh, that describe who Christians are supposed to be and describes how Christians are supposed to live out in the world in which we find ourselves. Um, Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount, as you will recall, with the section on the Beatitudes, speaking of those who are blessed, blessed with the poor in spirit, blessed with those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus lists those various uh, characteristics and traits of Christians whom he says are blessed, are happy. And, and the first thing that we really come to recognize is, is a lot of those characteristics that Jesus mentions there in those opening verses of his sermon go counterintuitive to our mind as to how the world tells us that that's who are blessed and that's who are happy. In fact, we, we really come to understand that Jesus 
paints for us a picture that, that the dissonance that is there between what he says and what the world is constantly saying to us really leaps off the page. If we really wanted to summarize the dissonance, we might say it this way. We'd say that true happiness that Jesus describes is not a happiness based upon our circumstances. Nor is it measured by worldly standards. Rather, it is a blessedness that results from, from emptiness, from, from neediness, from brokenness, from repentance, and, and from transformation by the grace of God through Christ. And let's just be honest. Most of the time, when we look at those kind of things, those are not the kind of things that we necessarily think will make us happy and will make us blessed. And yet Jesus says this is what, the, what should embody the kingdom of his believers. These are the attributes. These are the traits of those who are his followers. And what we immediately become aware of, though, is is that while there is much that Jesus teaches us with regard to the Beatitudes and, and how those things affect us in the interior of who we are, if we really begin to examine them and also what Jesus begins to say next, we come to find out that those, those characteristics, those traits are not something that's supposed to be just remain interior. They're actually things that are supposed to transform our lives to such a degree that we live them out not only in our own families, but in our community and in our world. Jesus never intended these beatitudes to be lived out in isolation away from the world. In fact, they are powerfully social in nature and they were outward focused when put into practice. Which is why I believe that Jesus follows the beatitudes with, with these two metaphors that I want us to examine this morning, and, and it's the metaphors of salt and light that tell us how those Beatitudes are supposed to be lived out. So let's read the Word of God this morning. Let's hear Jesus' words. These are very familiar verses, but I think their familiarity at times causes us to shut our thinking off of them. And this morning, I hope, and I hope that we are able to enliven that thought process as we hear these words. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us, for your mercy and for your grace, for allowing us the opportunity to be here this morning, for giving us your word, for encouraging us by it, penetrating our heart with it. Now I pray that it would find good soil and that we would listen to your Holy Spirit as you speak to us this morning. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I like what one uh, writer that I read said with regard to these two metaphors that Jesus uses in reference to believers. He says this, he says, As his followers, these words of Jesus both place upon us a high honor and confront us with a sobering challenge. We are given a very high honor, and we are confronted with a sobering challenge. And really, it is that, 
that understanding that sort of lies behind the way I want to handle this text this morning. I want us to, to really look at what that high honor is that is conveyed upon us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I want us to examine that in light of that, the sobering challenge that Jesus issues to us. And so that's going to kind of direct our way of handling this passage this morning. And so the very first point that I want you to see on your outline this morning is this. The salt and light metaphors remind us that there is a distinct difference between Christians and the world that we live in. If you've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to know Jesus says there is a, there is a distinct difference between you and the world in which you live. And, and that first metaphor comes there in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, our English translations don't really fully convey the emphasis that the Greek places upon the subject of that sentence. First of all, it's plural. It's not you singular. It is you plural. So here in the South, we like the word y'all. That's really, that's really the word there. Jesus says, y'all are the salt of the earth. But in the Greek, the emphasis of there, it, the subject is, is given great emphasis in there. So really what it's saying is you and you alone are the salt of the earth. Now that's, that's interesting and intriguing when you consider the fact that Jesus is speaking to his disciples and to a relatively small number of people that are following. We're not sure how many people were actually there but in, in listening to the sermon, but Regardless, in, in light of the, numerous, the number of people in the world then and certainly the number of folks in the world at this time in our lives, you recognize that when Jesus is speaking to them and saying you and you alone, in other words, those of you who are following me are the salt of the earth, Jesus was expressing great confidence in that group's ability to impact the world. And, and what that tells us is that that impact would start small, but that it would be effective and it would grow and it would continue to spread throughout the world. So it is worldwide impact and influence that Jesus has in mind here when he uses this metaphor of, of his followers being salt. Now, we also know that there's a lot of uses for salt here in about 30, 45 minutes to an hour. Some of you are going to be using that on your table. You're going to be reaching for a little container that'll have salt in it. And you're going to use it to, to sprinkle on your food. And that's, you know, it was used for seasoning in the first century world as well. But you might be interested in knowing that the number one function of salt in the first century world was for preservation. Um, unlike today, the first century world in which Jesus lived didn't have refrigerators, didn't have freezers. You couldn't just go to the grocery store and buy meat and take it home and put it in there and, and it just lasts because of the cold weather. No. Instead, what you did was when, when, when an animal was slaughtered, it would, it would, they would take salt and they would rub that meat down with it in order to prevent the natural decay and, and rotting of the meat. There's still places in the world that use that today. They'll take They'll take buckets and, and put water and mix that with salt and make a brine solution and meat then will go inside there and it will soak up and that's how that, that, that whole preservation process goes about. And that's always been one of the chief advantages and uses of salt. What Jesus says here to his followers, and that carries over to us who are his followers today, that we are the salt of the earth. And when he uses that metaphor, it tells us a little something about us, but it tells us something about the world that we live in and do. In fact, it tells us that everything in the world is in a state of rotting and decaying. Martin Lloyd-Jones actually has written this. He says, 
As a result of sin and the fall, life in the world in general tends to get into a putrid state. The world left to itself is something that tends to fester. Certainly, the world was not created that way. When God created everything, we noted that he said it was good. And it was good. It was all good. But then Genesis 3, sin entered the world. And as a result of sin, everything changed. It was a cataclysmic effect that sin happened as a result of of the sin there in the Garden of Eden. So much so that when the Apostle Paul gets to the New Testament and he's writing in Romans chapter 1, he talks about the fact that, that the whole world is now in a state of decay as a result of sin. John Stott has, has paraphrased what, what Paul writes about, and he says this, he says, when society suppresses the truth it knows by nature, it deteriorates. Its values and standards steadily decline until it becomes utterly corrupt. When men reject what they know of God, God gives them over to their own distorted notions and perverted passions until society stinks in the nostrils of God. I don't think it would take much imagination for many of us in this room to look around the world at which we see emblazoned upon our TVs night after night after night and imagine the fact that much of what we see stinks in the nostrils of God and it all resulted as a result of sin. The The world in which we live is decaying before our very eyes and it is a world that is characterized by rottenness and decay. But Jesus tells his followers, he tells his church, he tells Christians, you are the salt of the earth. In other words, we who are his followers have been placed here to perform an invaluable function with regard to the decaying world. In fact, that's the first sub point that I want you to see this morning. The first sub point just is very simple. Salt prevents decay. Salt prevents decay. Kent Hughes states it this way. The church as salt functions as a retardant to decay and a preservative in a disintegrating world. Jesus was saying, in effect, humanity without me is a dead body that is rotting and falling apart. But you, my followers, are the salt that must be rubbed into the flesh to halt the decomposition. In other words, true Christ followers here, we are here in this world to prevent the world from completely going bad. The question is, how do we do that? Well, we do it by living out who we are. That's that's the way we do it. Notice that Jesus doesn't say you are to become salt. His verb is in the present tense. You are salt. We are salt because why? We have been united to him by faith. And as a result, we are simply to live out in the world the the things that, that we have naturally available to us because we have been united to Christ. We are to embody all of those characteristics that we saw there in the Beatitudes. We are to pursue righteousness with our whole hearts. We are to live mercifully. We are to to live lives of purity. We are to strive to make peace with with our fellow man, but we are also to to strive to make peace between our fellow man and God. We are to allow the, the, the practical things of our lives to reflect the fruits of the Spirit. And when we do all of those things, when we live that way, we will have a sanctifying impact upon our culture. We will will act as salt. We will retard. We will impede. And by God's grace, even in some cases, we may be able to even prevent the decay that is so prevalent in the world around us. 
That leads us then to look at the second metaphor that Jesus uses. In verse 14, he uses the plural pronoun again. says, y'all and y'all alone are the light of the world. Now, just as we saw in the previous metaphor that tells us when it talks about salt, we recognize that that means that the world is in a decaying state. When we talk about light here, then we recognize that the world is in a darkened state. We are light because the world is in a darkened state. That's exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. He says, and this is the condemnation that light has come in the world, but men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So what that tells us is that the world, in, is, the world is in darkness, but it's in an intentional darkness. It's in a, it's in a darkness where, where those that are in it intentionally remain darkened. Deliberate darkness, we might say. Why? Well, because the world's deeds are evil. The falseness of the world not only leads to its rotting and decay, but it also leads to an utter darkness that despises the light. Of course, we know who the light, the true light of the world is. Jesus himself declared it in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light of light. You see, just as we noted earlier, it is because of our union with Christ by faith that you and I now have the light of life within us. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5, verse 8. He says, for you were once darkness. That's who you used to be. But then he says, now you are the light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. So as light, what is our function? Well, notice, notice the next subpoint there under, you will see that the light dispels darkness. Light dispels darkness. It drives out darkness. You ever been in a dark room and you lit a, a candle? It's amazing. It may not light the entire room, but it, it dispels the darkness around you. And certainly the greater the light, the greater the lumens that you have, the, the more darkness that is dispelled. So in a positive sense, light reveals things. We might say it that way. It brings things out into the open that were once concealed. In other words, as Christians, we are to expose for the world that the darkness that encases it is due to sin and it's due to mankind's separation from God because that's who we once were. We were in that darkness, separated from God. But we don't just stop with, with exposing those things which are concealed. If we did that, we would not be sharing the hope that Jesus Christ came to bring. Instead, by revealing to the world its sin, what we are then to be, to be lightened in darkness by revealing to the world that their, that, that their need is going to be met only through Jesus Christ. They may be chasing after so many other things, but they will only find continued darkness. Our responsibility and our obligation is to reveal Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only means of their hope. So to summarize that, this first point, we would just say that as Christians, Jesus says that we are to be distinctly different from the world around us. And, and unlike the world that is decomposing and rotting, we are salt that prevents that world's decay. And unlike the world that is stumbling around in the blackest of night, we are light that dispels the world's darkness. And if you think about that, 
Can you just imagine? Can you just consider what a high honor that God has placed upon us through his son? What a, what a tremendous blessing. If you really think about it, I was decaying. I was lost. My life was one that was rotting from the inside out. I was living in utter darkness. And yet Jesus Christ has come to save me. This is such an amazing high honor that has been placed upon those of us whom he has called to himself. But then let's also consider, though, that with that high honor comes a sobering challenge. In fact, that's the second point that I would make from this text. The second point on your outline is this. The salt and light metaphors further remind us of the obligations that Christians have to the world in which we live in. A high honor has been placed upon us. And with that high honor comes great responsibility. We've already touched on what being salt and light entail for the believer, but we also have to look at that, that Jesus goes on to emphasize just how important and necessary those responsibilities and obligations are. Notice verse 13. Jesus issues what amounts to a warning to us salty Christians. And what he basically says there, and as the first subpoint will tell you, is he says believers must not lose their saltiness. We, have, we, we cannot lose our saltiness. Jesus said if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, some of you chemistry buffs out there I know are already holding up your hand and going, you know, you know, sodium chloride, which is salt. That sodium chloride is a very stable compound. In fact, it's one of the most stable compounds known to mankind. And so, you know, it, it really doesn't lose its saltiness. You are correct. It does not. But let me tell you how what does happen. And this is what happened in the first century world, especially around the Dead Sea. There was a lot of salt that was there along with a lot of other impurities that were white substance. And that would come together. And it was the sodium chloride along with the other things that were also there on that seashore that were put in. And it was called salt. It was what we commonly call salt. But it was not pure sodium chloride. As a matter of fact, sodium chloride is probably more soluble than a lot of the other compounds in salt so that when water would pass through it, Sodium chloride would sort of melt away and what you'd be left with would be a powdery substance that would primarily be of all the other little impurities that figured into that salt. Now, they still called it salt, but it didn't taste like salt anymore. Now, if you think about that, that really becomes a way of understanding what Jesus is saying here. You see, what he's pointing us to is as believers who are salt, and, and really we can't lose our, our uh, we can't lose him, we can't lose him who brings salt into our lives, but we can become so assimilated into the world in which we live and that we can become contaminated by the impurities of the world that we end up losing our influence upon the world. We must be careful to recognize, just as we learned at the first, that that. The influence that a true Christian has in and on society depends upon our being distinct from it, recognizing that we've been called out from it. If Christians are indistinguishable, if our goals are the same goals as the rest of the world, if our motivations are the same motivations as the rest of the world, if our values and our morals are the same... Brothers and sisters, we will be useless as it pertains to being an impact upon the world. If that's the case, we've been contaminated 
by the impurities around us. And Jesus says we might as well be just discarded as saltless salt. Thrown out, trodden underfoot. Brothers and sisters, Jesus warns us that we as believers must not lose our saltiness. But the next thing that he tells us, you'll notice there's sub-point B, is that with regard to our being light, believers must never conceal their shine. You must not lose your saltiness, but you must not conceal your shine either. Notice verse 14 and 15. A city that is hid on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, nor, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Believers are not to conceal their shine. Here's the point. If we're truly Christians, and if we truly have the light of life in us because we've been united to Christ by faith, then we cannot be hidden any more than a city on a hill can be hidden. If we are true Christians, we who are, who will determine, who we are will determine what we do. And it will become evident to all around us that we belong to Jesus. And furthermore, Jesus says that to light a lamp and then to put it on a lampstand and then to cover it up with a bushel basket so that the light doesn't emit out into the room, that's worthless to do that to begin with. It's foolish. It's, it's a ridiculous idea. In effect, to do such a thing means to render the light useless. So just as salt is to remain salty by not becoming polluted with other contaminants so that it can accomplish what it was designed to accomplish, so light is to give off light. It is designed to dispel the darkness around it. And if it ceases to accomplish that function, then it is of no use. So consider this, that if the Lord has saved you by his marvelous grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God has illumined you like a lamp in a dark room. You've got the light of life in you. He has made you visible like a city on a hill so that everyone can see your light. And so God has placed you where he wants you in order for you to shine for his best advantage. So shine for him. Don't hide who you are. Don't be so timid and so afraid to speak up about your faith in Christ. Don't allow yourself to become intimidated by the world. Jesus already stated back in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Jesus goes on to say, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. But don't let that be what conceals the shine that you have within you from the world. Don't be afraid. How else will they ever be drawn to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ unless we who are his followers shine forth his truth through our testimony, to, through our good deeds? And just so there's no confusion, Jesus goes on to say, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Which, by the way, is not a suggestion. That is an imperative there in verse 16. Let your light shine is a command that Jesus issues to those who are his followers. And notice what he says there. He says, but let your light so shine, not so that you can look over your shoulder and see if everybody's noticing what you're doing. I wonder if they notice what I did today. I wonder, I wonder if they notice how good I did this. No. You don't let your light shine in other people so that they can see you and glorify you. 
You let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Christ followers desire for others who are in a darkened, decaying world to see the actions that they're involved with so that they may glorify the one who gave them the ability to do those things to begin with. We are to engage in beautiful, good works so that when others see them, when they see the shine of Jesus coming through the window panes of our lives, then they will glorify God because those same good deeds will embody the good news of God's love that we proclaim. And brothers and sisters, without, without lives that show forth the glory of God through our actions, our testimony will lose its credibility. That leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Because believers have the inherent qualities of salt and light, we must actively allow those qualities to impact and penetrate the decaying and darkened world in which we live for the glory of God. I've asked this question numerous times before, but I'm going to ask it again this morning just because I think it's appropriate in light of our text. Have you ever wondered why God allows believers to just go on living in this world after we've been saved? I mean, why when God saves us, doesn't he immediately just take us out of this world? We've been, we, Paul tells us that we're now citizens of the heavenly kingdom, not this kingdom. We've been given, just as Wayne Noggle mentioned earlier, we've been given a new name and we, we have a new father. The old has passed away, the new has come. Why not immediately take us to heaven? The reason he leaves us here, at least partially from what we can recognize from what Jesus says here, he leaves us in this world as a continued testimony as a, as a retarded against decay in this decaying world, as a continued testimony of the light of the life of Christ. And our responsibility, why he leaves us here, is so that we can testify of the good things that Jesus Christ has done for us. We are to penetrate the world for his continued glory and fame. And so consequently... John Stott has written, he said, Christian salt has no business to remain snugly and elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community just as salt is rubbed into meat to stop it going bad. He goes on to say, he said, but fallen humans need, beings need more than barricades to stop them from becoming as bad as they could be. They need re regeneration. They need new life through the gospel." And hence, our second vocation is to be the light of the world. So that's who we are. That's who we're supposed to be. The question is, is that you? Is that the life that you're living? When you honestly look at your life, are you distinct from the world around you? Are you actively allowing the qualities of salt and light that is yours by virtue of the fact that you have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Are those things your testimony? Are you salty? Are you shiny? When we set Christ apart as Lord of our, over our lives and when we, we set ourselves apart for him, the world will notice and it will ask, what is it that is so different about us? And when we answer with the truth of the gospel accompanied by beautiful deeds that exemplify that truth, we will then have served as the salt of the earth 
and the light of the world. These are our responsibilities and our obligations in light of the high honor that God has given to us through his son, Jesus Christ. My prayer, my prayer is that we as a church family and you as an individual and myself, that we will allow such knowledge to fan the flames of our soul, that it will renew us, that it will rejuvenate us, that it will revive us because brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's play together this morning.